more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. But there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Hannah Stewie. And I'm Lisa Hildebrand. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students and postdoctoral fellows in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student or a postdoc at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, Check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. This episode of Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and tonight on the show, our guest is Ellison Rose. Elle is a first-year MFA student in the School of Writing, Literature, and Film, or SWOLF. SWOLF? SWOLF? SWOW! <laughs> Welcome to the show, Elle. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, we were just talking right before we went live that uh, Elle's going to champion making the wolf thing happen for Swolf. <laughs> it's just such a missed opportunity, you know? Yeah, come on, we school. We need wolf stickers. Yeah. Stickers. Wolf branding. Yeah. A little plushy toy of a wolf, like, reading a book or something. I was going to say, with a pen in its hand yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah. Enamel pins. Yeah. There's oh my gosh! So yes. many options. So many opportunities. Tim Jensen, come on, listen up. Okay? Yeah, <laughs> Tim Jensen. I don't know who you are, but you're missing out on an opportunity. Here. <laughs> um, well, welcome, Elle. Uh, we're excited to have you on the show. Uh, let's start by uh, a very basic. Uh, anytime there's an acronym, I and it's not part of what I do. I'm like, oh no, what does that mean? So, what does MFA stand for? Very basic. So, MFA is a Master of Fine Arts. Um, it applies to all sorts of arts, but in this case, I'm studying writing. Um, my particular track is creative nonfiction writing. Very cool. And as someone who's not within the realm of writing, I hear creative nonfiction and my brain kind of goes, what? You can be creative while writing nonfiction? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty typical. Um, but yeah, creative nonfiction, I'm sure you've read plenty of it. Like um, anytime that you've read an article in The New Yorker or in The Atlantic, um, that's all going to be creative nonfiction. Those like essays where, you know, they dive into cultural aspects, but they also, you know, there's lots of research, um, but there is very much like a personal eye involved. Um, or when, you know, you're telling a story with lots of detail, but it is a true story. Like anytime that you're doing stuff like that, you're you're doing creative nonfiction. And what are the, besides creative nonfiction, what are the other kind of like tracks that you can go down in your program? Yeah. So the other options um, as an MFA candidate is to study fiction or poetry. Okay. And a lot of us are cross genre workers. Like we do take the other workshops, um, but we're, we, we apply through a single track, through a single genre. And um, our thesis should focus primarily on that genre as well. 
And within the, um, I guess, genre of creative nonfiction, what are sort of the the paths that you can go down um, as as a writer there? And what will your thesis sort of encompass or entail? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of different ways that one can write creative nonfiction. Um, there's like the more research driven essays, um, the word essay. Oh my goodness, I'm, I can't believe I'm going to say this on the radio because, man, I've heard people talk about it so many times, but I'm, I'm not necessarily <laughs> talking to nonfiction writers right now, so I will. Um, but the word essay means to try. Um, and that, uh, yeah. Wow, wow. I, I just saw the light bulb, that. so it's so cool. I had no idea, yeah. Yeah, huh. so that's an important thing um, to know, like, especially when we're taught in like the academic world often that an essay is really like to argue, you know, like you mm. go in already knowing what you're talking about mm-hmm. and you're trying to convince other people that that's, um, that that's the truth or to synthesize your research and just like hand people like a basket of information, you mm-hmm. know? Um, but yeah, the Latin root, Latin, Ugh, I'm going to embarrass myself not knowing, <laughs> unsure, but the root of the language, you know, of the word essay means to try and so when we write in creative nonfiction, which is another word that a lot of people even hate, like nonfiction writers are like, isn't all writing creative? Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, you're trying to figure something out. You know, mm. you're trying to figure something out about like the human experience. Mm. Um, again, another sort of piece of creative nonfiction that someone might be uh, familiar with is like the autobiography, right? Mm-hmm. Which is um, the story of someone's life. Very concerned with facts very concerned with dates with names with um specifics of that person's story Mm -hmm. typically it uh, spans the entire scope of their life from the beginning to the end um or till wherever they are if they're a public figure that's like active in the world and that's you know what made the autobiography be something that was relevant Mm -hmm. um whereas and there's like a memoir which is i think kind of where my thesis is going to end up going um, which is more spe- more focused on um, either a specific experience. So something like, say, Cheryl Strayed's book Wild, that's very much focused on the specific experience of her hiking trip. Um, or it's um, something that's like more thematically linked in someone's life. So one of my professors in undergrad, um, really incredible writer, her name is Sonia Livingston, um, and her first book was called Ghost Bread. And it was very much like a series of vignettes about her childhood um, growing up uh, in like in in poverty as mm. uh, one of many children. Um, ghost bread was like a particular type of food that they would make for themselves. Mm. And so this beautiful memoir is like just a series of vignettes about different moments in her life. But the the theme there was like this particular experience of growing up as a young girl um, in a large family uh, in poverty. And I guess um, one other thing that I thought of, of um, like what makes autobiographies sort of different from memoirs, often they're very chronological, right? Whereas I think in a memoir, you can sort of play a little bit with time and I guess timelines. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And Um, with memoirs, you can really... It doesn't necessarily have to be one singular event, but like can be a collection of many into maybe a cohesive narrative, you would say? Yeah, it could be a cohesive narrative. Sometimes there's also people do like a memoir in essays. So like each of those, you know, rather than having a vignette that's like a moment in someone's life, the the fragments in the overarching memoir is actually 
more of like an idea, like they're trying to figure out something about their life or this, you know, series of events of events in their lives. And that might not be chronological at all. Mm. Um, it might be more like, again, thematic. It might be more of a movement from, um, you know, what is the word that I'm thinking of when, um, association, you know, you might have like this particular vignette and then the next essay starts like pulls out one piece of something that happened in the previous story and Mm -hmm. kind of plays around with that a while and tries to figure out how that's relevant in their lives. And on that, um, on that thought, um, you'd mentioned to us in our pre-interview with you that you, um, think of yourself as writing a lot like a fiction writer, like a lot of your writing is about your reader and probably you as the writer feeling very embedded in your in in like the scene that you're depicting. Can you describe that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So it's funny that I've even come to that. I've only been here, you know, and this is my first year. It's also which means it's also my first term yeah. We're in the fall. <laughs> um, but that means I've been here, what, like six weeks and already I'm having that realization about my work mm. that it's um maybe more akin to fiction writing than I ever thought before. I actually started writing poetry when I was very young. So I always thought of my work as being really poetic. Um, And I don't think that that's, you know, not true. I certainly um, have, you know, a a really intense connection to sound and rhythm in my work. Um, But um, something that we've talked about in our nonfiction workshop this term is how a fiction writer is really interested in immersing you into a moment, like staying like, you know, line by line, like beat by beat, like in the space, like really embedded in the space. Um, whereas a lot of nonfiction writers kind of bring you up to the surface. Um, shout out to Aviva for this metaphor, actually. Um, it was incredible and I will keep it forever. I love you. Um, yeah, so nonfiction writers kind of come up to the surface and look at things from a from a bigger perspective. Um, more interested in like seeing making those connections that you can make like more from above than you can like more in the like when you're more imbe- embedded into the moment. And so I'm finding as I'm trying to write all of my essays that it's very hard for me to leave scene actually. Mm. Um, part of it, like when I'm mining my memory or when I'm trying to, um, recreate a moment that, um, that probably happened (laughs) or is like, um, is emblematic of an experience that I'm trying to speculate and recreate. Um, I very much feel like I'm in the room and I have a camera. And so I'm just like looking around with the camera and I'm trying to show the reader and myself, even like everything that I'm seeing, you know, and then the connections have to come later. But when I'm not sure where I'm going because I'm moving through the scene, through the moment, man, it takes me forever. (laughs) (laughs) It takes a long time to get where you're going when Mm. every single step is like a tiny little glance around the room. Mm. <laughs> but yeah. I'm working on it. Just means I have to write a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, and speaking, I think we have sort of the perfect example for listeners for um, uh, what, like, how good you are at that. Um, I'm speaking of the story you told us. Um, I think you were in fourth grade or something with that story <laughs> you were a mentor. Do you want to tell that story? I, uh, I just love that so much. Okay, sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, when I was in fourth grade, um, 
I always loved to write. Um, anytime that we had a writing assignment, um, mine was often used as like the example of like, this is somebody did a good job and here, let's read it to the classroom. And that did absolutely nothing for my ego, I promise. <laughs> but uh, in I this completely instance... completely down to earth. <laughs> um, in fourth grade, I had this, we had this assignment. It was creative. It was a creative assignment. And it was like, they set the scene for you and they left a cliffhanger and the cliffhanger was like, there was a huge hole in the middle of the playground. Dun, dun, dun. What are you going to do with this story? And so... I was so excited. I had this whole idea of like how I was going to go through this tunnel and there was going to be this whole world on the other side and I was going to have this whole experience. And then I would come back and, you know, the hole would go away and it would be all have been, I don't know, maybe it was a, it was all just a dream kind of ending. Who knows? I was, you know, what did we say? Like 10. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But anyway, I was writing and I was writing and suddenly I realized that we were basically out of time and I had just gotten through the tunnel. (laughs) (laughs) I hadn't even gotten to to the world world yet. I was so disappointed. (laughs) And so like in the interest of, you know, turning it in on time, um, I just had like a little gnome like push me back into the tunnel and I just had to run back through the tunnel to the <laughs> other end and go back to the real world. Um, and my story was much shorter than I intended intended for it to be. Um, yeah. So I've been, you know, plotting my way through all these sensory details since I was 10, I guess. Yeah. Because so. I guess that means your story was basically you go into the hole, you're in the tunnel. You, you get to the end of the tunnel, the gnome pushes you back in. Basically, yeah, yes, but, but I somehow for, took like an entire class period right. to write like knew exactly what that tunnel felt like. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Felt it, smelt it. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, well, speaking of your writing, um, you did bring us a little writing sample. Maybe that's a good segue into um, giving you the floor to to read us something. Yeah, that sounds great. And it's funny because we're talking about scene here and I have two little pieces and one of them is very much that instance of like beat by beat scene. And the other one is more of a, oh man, um, Elena said something great the other day. Elena, the director of the MFA program, um, who's also my nonfiction professor, um, was talking about description um, and how there is like that embedded in scene type of description and then there's this other thing that she called like flyover details Mm. where you kind of like tell a lot of story like there's more time passage it's um it is again like a higher perspective Mm -hmm. and you kind of you know tell all those details but like from over a course of more time or over a course of more space or something like that um I think I like my like flyover one a little better Mm. so even though it's maybe not what we were talking about um I am going to read it. It was a part of the sample that um, that actually got me in to the program. Okay. So um, this is setting the bar for all people thinking of applying to the MFA program. This is what gets you in. <laughs> oh, God. Um, that's fine. My, my ego is fine. <laughs> it peaked in fourth grade. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay. This is... Um, an excerpt from an as-of-yet uncompleted essay called Package Deal. Mama and I were a package deal. You've heard these words before. In the society of second marriages and birth certificates left half-blank, you've known this pair, maybe been a part of it, seen its likeness on a screen. A woman stands with one hand planted firmly on a miniature head of hair, 
tired eyes resolutely faced forward, mouth set in a straight line, warning, you will never have all of me. My mother was one such woman. But that's not right exactly. My mother was not yet a woman. Mama was a girl child, 17 and sweet-faced, and I, her plump micro-me, sat squirming on her hip with tiny painted fingers tangled in her curls. She knew mother before she knew women, knew sacrifice before she knew self. From the furthest back bedroom of her parents' double-wide trailer, eight miles out of Pocahontas, Arkansas, po population 6,000 brows furrowed in scrutiny, she learned desperation and determination hand in hand. During sleepless nights of homework and bottle warming, yawning at the sunrise over the dashboard, driving a paper route that barely paid for diapers, she learned need before she learned love. That's not to say she didn't love the man she married, the man I called dad for the next 18 years. They met in mid-July and were married by Christmas, and if that's not the recklessness of young love, I don't know what is. But I wonder if maybe she loved him the way a truck driver loves that blinking vacancy sign. Already passed a few, the next one could be better, but... It's time. She was tired. He offered her rest. Wow. Elle, that was beautiful. That was incredible. Powerful. The she knew sacrifice before she knew self. Wow. I have goosebumps. <laughs> <laughs> Woof. When are you going to finish that, Elle, so that uh, we can read the whole thing? <laughs> uh, I think I'll try and work on it this uh, in the winter term, actually. Okay. So, wow. Yeah. Is this what's a part of your memoir, which will be part of the thesis? I how I would find it so like it's it's weird. You're like right, not weird, but you're you know you're like writing for a purpose, aka your thesis. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you I don't think I'm I'm putting this in words well. But you know it's it there's purpose there in terms of like you need your you know you're here for your degree and now there's deadlines. But also it's so personal how do you sort of reconcile that I don't know if I said that well do you get what I'm trying to say um <laughs> doing really well as an interviewer <laughs> um I think so I mean you're saying like how does one like work through this process of like very personal writing on the kind of schedule um mm -hmm. in order to produce a product that's like 70 to 100 pages like yeah. you know in two years from now yeah we know. should switch seats that was really <laughs> well, well well asked um okay well uh first of all it is my first term I have no idea mm -hmm. <laughs> but also um you know I've been out of undergrad for eight years um I could have tried I don't know that I could have gotten in but I could have tried to apply um eight years ago as soon as I got out but um I think I needed time, mm -hmm. you know, I needed time to learn self-management skills. I needed time to, um, really, I don't know. I think I grew up in a working class family as perhaps is obvious from that mm -hmm. reading. Um, and I think I needed time to break out of that mold a little bit and like recognize that I could actually be an artist and like there was something you know, that my art w was worth following, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm certainly, um, you know, it is hard sometimes to go in and look at all these memories, you know, and find the right words to get them out. But I also feel like it's like what I'm supposed to be doing, mm -hmm. you know, and I also feel like it was time for me to do it. Mm -hmm. Like I got here and this is what I'm here to do. And, you know, so far 
I'm doing a lot more teaching than I am writing, but um, <laughs> uh, yeah. But it's the first term, and everybody tells me that after the first term, once you've built lesson plans for a term, like it starts getting easier. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, uh, I'll get back to you at the, okay. at the end of two years. But yeah. as it is, I'm just gonna keep trying to show up as often as I can, as often as I have time to, and get it all out, and then hope. I can make some connections that make it worth um, reading to other people and not just, you know, my own personal therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Which, side note, shout out to all MFA students who actually write and create their own lesson plans as as TAs. Hats off to all of you. MA students as well. Yeah. 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 We don't do any of that. Mm. <laughs> we do the teaching, but most of the time we don't do the course design. Yeah, no, the, it's... Yeah, it's, all the paper grading, too. I have 25 students. I have 25 um, times 750 words to grade uh, in <laughs> on, on my desk right now. So Fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, I'm thinking about so much of the, like, you really did even okay you said that that piece is more of the flyover detail but still i saw that image so clearly of you and your mother yeah yeah um dang al you're talented (laughs) (laughs) thank you um let's talk a little bit about sort of um i guess the the themes that you're um going to be writing about or the ones that you're passionate about depicting in in your your memoir and your writing because there's a lot of them and they're really important ones so do you want to take us on a on a little bit of a trip yeah thanks um well you know again um obviously I grew up in a very small town in the rural south um and we didn't have a lot of money you know and um my grandmother is a first-generation Mexican-American, by which I mean she was the first generation that was born in the U.S. Um, And my grandfather, um, I'm not sure how many generations out from immigration he is, um, but it's not many. He was um, really a Eastern European, like primarily Polish, Um, the kind of immigrant that didn't have access to whiteness when they landed, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, they had to change, had to quote unquote, change their last name, um, chose to anglicize their last Mm. name, um, to blend in more, um, like many Jewish, Polish, um, you know, families. And so anyway, um, I grew up really working class and I didn't know that I could be an artist, you know, for a long time. Um, I'm still not sure that I can be an artist. I'll probably have a day job. Let's be real. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know with that writing I'm I'm kind of yeah still stunned convinced. over here yeah yeah um you have two cheerleaders on this side of the table so well, thanks <laughs> I appreciate that uh yeah anyway I um I really am just interested in telling the stories of you know my people and my people being rural people my people being um queer people my people being um <clears throat> you know working class people, people who are a short number of generations out of poverty, you know, um, talking about intergenerational trauma, talking about the legacies, those legacies of immigration and assimilation. Um, My grandmother, again, is she's first generation Mexican-American. She's the oldest of seven children. She's the only one in her family that speaks Spanish. None of her Mm. siblings um, learn Spanish. Um, and thankfully, some of their children have learned Spanish and some of their grandchildren have learned Spanish. And, and I'm um, I've done 
some work to learn Spanish as well. And I'm um, working towards fluency eventually. Fingers crossed for me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, Because I am trying to kind of reclaim that culture as much as I can. Um, But yeah, I'm interested in in telling these stories and just really showing the humanity of people that often don't get art made about them. Um, And I recognize that that's also changing. Like there are lots of people that are having these conversations and um, so many, you know, queer people, people of color that are getting their stories told finally. Um, And I'm just trying to be one of those voices that's like championing um, the people that weren't traditionally listened to, you know. So that's kind of what I'm trying to write about. Um, Yeah, while I was writing uh, the piece that I'm working on this term, I was, (laughs) what led me there actually was Googling the words rule shame. Mm. Because that's something that I have dealt with for a long time. Um, As someone who grew up in a very small town with a racist name, um, I have tried not to claim that. I remember when I first moved to Memphis, which is where I got my undergrad. When I first moved to Memphis, or shortly after, I suppose, I was talking to a friend of mine, and um, she was saying that I had really glown up since I'd, since I'd been in Memphis, and that, no offense, but I could really, you know, still see the Arkansas on you when I came, got to Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, bless her heart, I didn't, I'm, uh, don't think she was trying to hurt my feelings in any way, you know? Mm-hmm. But um, it's certainly something that I have been very aware of Mm. um we were talking last week and you can't hear a southern accent really no um it comes through a bit when I say certain words or it comes through a bit when I even when I speak in more of a like in when I speak my writing some of the writing has it you know Mm. so when I say like mama was a girl child like Mm. that comes through Mm -hmm. you know um and once I choose to embody that voice on the page when I read it out loud then maybe I'm more likely to use it in conversation um but I was very much trained by my grandparents well one of my grandparents specifically to not have that accent Mm. um and whenever it does come out like I get chuckles you know from people and I know sometimes they're like admiring but it's very hard um just because of the legacy of like shame around having grown up in that kind of a place and I don't think it's a shameful place um I think it's a complicated place and I think that all places are complicated places Um, and the idea that you know urban places are somehow more valuable than rural places um, is really harmful and so while I was working on this particular topic I googled that phrase like rural shame and I found a particular article that was trying to um, break down the culture the ideology of deficit surrounding rurality Mm -hmm. like rural spaces in academic circles are defined as non-urban spaces Mm -hmm. Um, there is not a cohesive definition for what makes a rural space bizarre that the definition yeah it's like oh it's just the opposite of this thing yeah yeah this thing that was developed like more recently (laughs) urban came after yeah yeah absolutely bizarre Um, you know there's obviously a lot of problems with that one in that it is defining an entire space by what it lacks Mm. defining Mm -hmm. people by what they lack Mm -hmm. defining um, culture by what it lacks but it also really flattens um an existence that is very diverse like to be rural in arkansas is very different than to be be rural in oregon Mm -hmm. um and 
that's not to say that we're not family because I definitely feel like um, the people that I meet that live in rural Arkansas are my kin um, in a lot of way. They are my people. Um, but there is also diversity that is completely unrecognized by that definition. Mm. Um, so I found this particular article that was presenting a different framework for rurality, for uh, defining rurality, which was uh, through rural cultural wealth, mm. um, which uh, I believe uh, familialism is one of them, one of the tenets that they proposed. I believe it was three, and at the moment I can only think of two, but it was familialism and resourcefulness. I want to say the third was something about being connected to the land. Mm. Um, I can't quite recall their language. Um, but I felt those things growing up, even as someone whose family didn't come from there. Mm-hmm. Um, even as someone who was like, I was first generation where I was born. I was first generation in the rural South, you know, but even as that, like I was surrounded by people um, who had this connection to the land. And the reason that my family moved there was because of a longing to be closer to the land. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's something about being in a small town, like everybody knows your business, but also everybody's got your back. Mm -hmm. There's like, again, a familialism, Mm -hmm. a community Mm -hmm. um, that is, hard to come by Mm -hmm. in urban spaces Mm -hmm. so anyway i am not a researcher you know a cultural like um anthropological researcher in that way but i am interested in telling those stories and like having that be at the forefront the wealth um that is inherent in being um a rural person rather than focusing on the deficit but also like not just glorifying it, mm-hmm. you know, recognizing that it is a complicated space and these are complicated people mm-hmm. and just like really highlighting the humanness of it all. I think that's a really fascinating conversation. And I, I guess a little surprising that it's because you, you mentioned that this is sort of like a new paper, a new concept and and kind of a new conversation, which is really interesting. But yeah, that it's sort of taken so long for the conversation to be about this. Um, yeah, but I, I, I guess there's also been like a lot of other things that have needed to be sort of deconstructed and talked about as well. But yeah, it's interesting that that's sort of lacked behind because a large majority of the global population probably lives in what would be defined as quote unquote rural, um, you know, spaces. Yeah, um, I... You know, I'm not a researcher Mm -hmm. in that way, and so I can't speak to why, but I can say my theory, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is that um, uh, the reason that there's not a lot of people talking about rurality in academic circles is because there's not a lot of rural people in academic circles. Mm -hmm. You know, Um, it is, again, the article that I even found was someone talking about how they themselves had a lot of shame and that Mm -hmm. they never would have even applied, like, when they went to some like informational table about applying for a PhD program. They were looking to see if anyone there was a normal person, mm-hmm. you know, that's what they, those are their words, mm-hmm. you know, a normal person. Mm-hmm. And they didn't, they said, I, um, man, I'm going to have to, um, find this article so that you can link it in your show notes or something, mm-hmm. because I owe credit to this person in a lot of ways. But she was saying that, you know, she didn't know what a normal person was, but she would have known if she, the person wasn't mm. a normal person mm-hmm. and um, and that she would not have applied if the person that she talked to hadn't been a normal person. Mm-hmm. And when she says, like, not a normal person, what she definitely means is like, you know, the child of professors, like the child mm. of academics. Like one of the things that we talk about when we're getting trained to teach um, at the beginning of this program in our orientation 
is recognizing that there is a lot of like it's like a whole culture you know academia is a culture Mm -hmm. and there's a language to it Mm -hmm. um and we're supposed to try and make the implicit explicit for our students Mm. and i'll tell you what when i was in orientation i was sitting there like looking up at them and being like but are you gonna make the implicit explicit for me right right (laughs) like i don't actually i don't even know what i don't know like i don't know what the questions are Mm -hmm. um it's and people speak you know with a certain like cadence and so there's not a lot of room to even ask questions because they assume that you already know the answers to your you already know what these words mean and then if you're already dealing with the shame of feeling like you're not well educated or you're not from you know the right place Mm -hmm. or you don't have you know you're a first generation college student then it can be really hard to say like stop what does that word mean i need you to explain that to me yeah because you're really just trying to keep up right you know right because the the conversations moved on already and Mm -hmm. you're yeah Mm -hmm. and then to be like please please (laughs) let me catch yeah yeah that's yeah it's a hard thing to do absolutely yeah and it just made me think about what we talked about before about like modeling when you grow up in a rural place you don't necessarily have you know someone that is an academic around to like let you know that that's something up maybe a quote-unquote normal person can be you know (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely so your your worldview can be really limited by what you don't know exists Mm -hmm. or even like you know obviously I knew when I was reading all of those um novels as a child that somebody had to write them right Mm -hmm. you know but it just never occurred to me that it could be someone like me Mm -hmm. you know um yeah we were talking about modeling before and how the smart kids are just told that they're going to be doctors or mm-hmm. lawyers, you know, like anyone who's gifted is just supposed to be a doctor or a lawyer. Mm-hmm. It's the pinnacle of education, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. You had some, you had that yourself, right? Yo, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 My mother was a nurse and, um, and so she obviously she knew that I was bright and she was always just like well you're gonna be a doctor Mm. you know Mm -hmm. and every one of my teachers was like well you're gonna be a this right you're Mm. gonna be a this and it Mm. was like whatever their field of study was Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. um except for that fourth grade teacher who was like fourth grade teacher what was the quote when you read your first book yeah she said um and this was, again, over the stupid little story <laughs> where the gnome pushed me down in the tunnel. Elle so didn't funny. even get out of the tunnel. <laughs> um, but sometime in the description of the tunnel, um, I wrote the sentence. It, literally, she read the sentence. It was like, I shivered. I'm like, it's a two-word sentence. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, I guess. And I'm half of it. <laughs> But regardless, after she said that sentence, she stopped and she looked up at me and she said, can you do me a favor? I said, sure thing, Miss Taylor. Um, And she said, can I have a signed copy of your first book? It was so special. Yeah, Miss Taylor, shout out. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I, I hope she's still around. I'll have to look into it. Um, Because I would love to sign, send her a signed copy of my first book. Um, But she's going to get the dedication regardless that's beautiful i um i'm sort of going to pivot because i had this uh this question uh pop into my mind in your program how how do they teach you to write creative nonfiction? i guess without sort of like washing out your own voice and and maybe that's just inherent in the creativity and 
my brain being more like nonfiction as autobiography or whatever. Mm. Um, but yeah, how, how are they able to, te- I guess, yeah, not wash it away? Um, well, really, it's about finding our voice and turning it up. Mm. You know, it's about teaching us how to um, identify what our work is and what it wants to be and help it be that better. Mm. You know, help it um, realize its potential, mm-hmm. kind of. They're like little babies, all of our little essays. I have a, a piggyback question on that. It, yeah. So do you find that that is specific to being an MFA and like, you know, learning writing, whereas in undergrad, was that process different? And was the learning more rigid going through as an undergraduate in a writing degree? Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I will say that like as an MFA, there's a lot more like, I mean, we all are already writers, you know, like this is like a 4% acceptance rate into this program. Like, like something like hundreds of people apply and, um, and specifically in nonfiction, four of us got in, you know? Wow. Wow. Um, and that's how it is. Like there's, I think four in each, in each genre every year. So like my cohort is like eight people of nonfiction people. Right. Um, so we're not learning how to write. We're learning to master writing, mm. right? Um, which is something that is really intimidating, honestly. Mm-hmm. Like reading all of my my peers are so talented. Mm-hmm. It is crazy. <laughs> I'm just like, who oh, can I am I can I even like allowed to talk to you? Wow, this is crazy. Um, yes, you absolutely are. <laughs> yes. We heard a writing sample L. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so in the, in this MFA program, like we're very much, um, learning to master rather than learning Mm. to write, um, in the course, the nonfiction course that I'm taking right now, um, uh, Elena is walking us through, like, we're trying to like find good, like identify language to be able to talk about what is happening on the page Mm -hmm. and how it's making us feel and how we can, you know, either lean in or step back or like try something else mm-hmm. um, if that's not what we're going for as writers. And then like the craft class that I'm taking is about voice particularly. So um, really what she's having us do is examine other people's voices um, and explore them, like play with writing our own stuff that's in someone else's voice, you know, mm. um, helping us to identify what our what the pieces of our voice already are and again like make choices about whether where we want to lean in and where we want to cut you know um so the craft class is very specifically like on voice which is so nebulous really (laughs) 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 like what is is voice just style like i don't Mm, it's a lot you know yeah um but yeah so whereas in the undergraduate program that i was in so i did do creative writing in my undergrad and we it did also have like a track system in the way that the mfa does and so i was doing creative nonfiction then as well and i had to take the workshop twice um that Mm. was part of the assignment is like you have to take your track workshop twice Mm. and i actually took the graduate level workshop my senior like my last term of undergrad because it did very much feel like it was a lot more geared towards learning how to write, mm-hmm. you know, a lot more geared towards like, well, this isn't working because of this. Mm-hmm. Like, I need this from you. You know, I'd certainly um, helped, you know, walk people through like being able to describe a scene when mm-hmm. they were, you know, I, I used that ca- that camera metaphor that I used earlier about how when I'm 
describing a moment like I'm holding the camera right and so if you were actually holding a camera and you were filming a space and you were looking in one corner and then you suddenly jerked over to the other corner like that would be really disorienting mm. but people do that in their writing mm -hmm. um you know people who are maybe less seasoned do that in their writing mm. like they have all these ideas about what the space looks like or something mm. like that and they might just like jerk around and tell you all the different parts of it um whereas if you were actually holding a camera you're basically going to be following a person and their action and if you need to describe the scene it's going to be things that they're interacting with or mm. you know there's just like those are the kinds of things that I helped people do in undergrad, you know, mm -hmm. that we talked about in our undergraduate workshops is like how to render a scene on the page or like how to use active verbs instead of passive verbs, you know, um, whereas in the MFA program, we're like, oh, this has a bunch of passive verbs in it. But in this case, it's actually really cool because it feels like you're trying to accomplish this. You mm -hmm. know, it's certainly less prescriptive, a lot more just like reactive and um, descriptive and um, exploratory, I think. Mm. Mm. Wow. Um, I'm so sad to say that we're running out of time. <laughs> I don't know how, but 42 minutes has gone past. Wow. <laughs> um, and this could go on and on forever. Uh, it's I it's my fault. I talk a lot. No, no but, it's perfect. <laughs> but it's compelling. Um, and if there weren't a show uh, right after us uh, about cheese um, or something at I eight, um, I would keep going. But um, we can't. So uh, I think we have to transition to our traditions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not the end yet. Okay. So we'll start with, I guess, we always do a piece of advice that can be to really anyone you want. Your audience is up to you. But a piece of advice you would give to X person or groups of people. Okay. Um, I was thinking about this. And, you know, the world is a lot different than when I was growing up. Like, um, I didn't have internet in my house until I was 18 years old. Mm. Um, again, that's part of being in the rural place that I was. Um, but I still kind of want to speak to that idea of like modeling. And, um, I'll be honest, if there's anyone who, you know, any teenager who's trying to figure out they're wanting to do with their life and they're listening to this podcast right now, they're already doing a great job. <laughs> but, um, regardless, I'm still going to say this cause I want to put it out in the world. And that's, if you think that there's something that you have to be, um, then, look for models because you don't have to be that. And even if there's not a model in your community, now we ha do have the internet mm. and it's all over the place. And there's plenty of writers on podcasts mm -hmm. um, and at book festivals and there's plenty of artists and there's plenty of scientists and there's lots of people having conversations in the public sphere and you can find your own models. Like they don't have to be in your direct community anymore. Mm. And I just really hope the young people today like have more of an open mind than I did mm. you know yeah Gen Z they are open-minded <laughs> yeah yeah and it's I awesome love that for them yeah. <laughs> yes <laughs> um uh our next tradition is that we ask you um to tell us what your favorite thing is about your research or your program here at OSU which I think I know is very open-ended but if you have yeah what is it <laughs> um Something that we've been saying in workshop that um, clearly has been said in workshops before because it was not said like it was a new thing by any means. Um, but I totally agree with and that is that nonfiction is magic. Like mm. Elena says, and I'm sure others say all the time, nonfiction is magic. And it just really is, um, you know, 
even even if you're not doing this like very internal like personal deep dive like I am where I'm like really just like mining my memory and looking for the connections and trying to figure out what it means for me and what it means for the people in my life and what it means for humanity you know because obviously all of my experiences are so important in that way <laughs> but, um, even if you're not doing that you know even if you're talking about pop, pop culture or you're talking about something else um, like there's we as humans, like we look for patterns, you know, mm. and we obsess over things. We don't know why we're obsessed with them, mm. you know, and as a nonfiction writer, like you, you investigate those patterns and you investigate those um, obsessions and you find you turn over these things and they're just like so exciting. Sometimes mm-hmm. you're just like, oh, my goodness, I didn't even know that that connection existed. I didn't even know that that meant that for me. I didn't even know that that meant that for culture. I didn't know that meant that for society. And it's just exhilarating it's just like such a thrill to like make a connection mm-hmm. all of a sudden mm-hmm. so that's my favorite thing about writing nonfiction. wow mm. great answer i love that answer yeah. <laughs> let's see did we do least favorite thing oh what <laughs> no we can't we can't be adding more traditions <laughs> okay okay um yeah last thing is your outro song of your choosing so tell us what you picked and why yeah so i chose a song called everything i am is yours by villagers um it's definitely a love song um i like to think of love songs in different ways sometimes um like there are lots of things that we love and that we dedicate ourselves to um i think it was last weekend there was the portland book festival um and i went and saw multiple authors speak and one of them was uh, major jackson who's an incredible poet and he read a newer poem of his and a line in it was so beautiful and it said uh reader i should have married you sooner Um, it was stunning um he's he's he just came out with his like new uh new and selected he's like mid-career essentially so he's written all these works and he's been you know celebrated and and this is what he's saying at this midpoint in his life like reader i should have married you sooner and when i was trying to figure out what song i wanted to do for my outro here as this is like something that's happening my first term of being (laughs) in my program you know and like finally doing this thing that i really feel like I've, you know, been building up to for a long time. I'm just saying like to myself, to my work, to my art, like everything I am is yours. This, I'm dedicating myself to my art right now. So that's why I chose this song. I love it. Yeah. And with that, everything I am is yours by the villagers. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Elle. Thank you for having me. Everything I am 
Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. The theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Haman. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Holbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening and stay curious, my friends.